are colliding. The Big Bang. Reboot the universe. Come on. It's the Action Comedy Nerd Show. Comedy Nerd Show. When you hear that music, you know it's time for the Action Comedy Nerd Show podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, and sitting with me is my co-host, Dan Brown. Dangerous Dan Brown. Dangerous Dan Brown. We're going to get that to stick before we're done. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I hope I don't go through the entire interview and can call Dan Brown instead of Dangerous Dan Brown. That, I'm sure that would be humiliating for that, you. That would be my ring name. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of ring names, the reason Dan is so obsessed with ring names is today's interview is with legend of old school wrestling, Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. The Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. The Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., whose career spans the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the new millennia. The aughts. The aughts. He's had so many interesting experiences, adventures. He has met with or wrestled just about every name you can mention, including Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and Scott Steiner. And in our interview, he talks about all those people and more. Yes, in great detail with some of them. Oh, yes. And it talks about some of his experiences on the road and what it was like getting trained. Uh, he was originally trained by the original The Sheik in Detroit. Yes. There's a lot of stories about that. Uh, this is just a great interview for wrestling fans, especially fans of the history of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was definitely very excited to uh, to hear that we were doing this, um, and I did not want to miss out on it. Uh, so, yeah. And to help us add even more fun to this interview, we brought another guy in who hosts a radio show where he also interviews wrestlers. Yes, the WrestleManiacs. The host of the WrestleManiacs, Ray Highclack, sat in on this interview with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely fun having Ray uh, be a part of everything, too, because uh, we know that he would truly appreciate the, the true star that Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. was. Well, Ray brought a lot of enthusiasm to the interview, and also he has a, his own wealth of knowledge based on all the people he's interviewed. And so, the real uh, wrestling fan in Ray, Ray brought no women with him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dan, so let's get straight to our interview with Dr. Graham. Let's do it. Today's interview with wrestling legend Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. I'm your host, Jerry Jaffe, and with me is my co-host for the Action Comedy Nerd Show podcast, Dan Brown. It's dangerous Dan Brown today, Jerry. Dangerous Dan Brown. <laughs> and sitting on my right is the co-host of the radio show about wrestling, WrestleManiacs, Ray Highclack. Sadly, it's off the air now, but we're trying to make a comeback. We're there's, trying to make that baby face comeback, though. There's still a web presence, though. These so. are the two toughest nerds I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> then obviously, you've never seen that many tough nerds in your yes. life. Well, most of the nerds he's seen were more like me. That's yeah. why. That's who he's comparing to. And that was the voice of legendary wrestler himself, Dr. Jerry Graham. 
Thank you. It's uh, your pleasure for me to be here. It is my pleasure for you to be here. Do we, in, this is the year 2016, do we call you Dr. Jerry Graham or Dr. Jerry Graham Jr.? Well, you can call me Dr. Graham. Okay. Uh, I was junior, but I, I, dropped, the, I dropped the junior when I uh, turned 40 and <laughs> senior had retired. So uh, it was, in fact, it was on a suggestion of a promoter, you know, a 40-year-old man doesn't look like a junior, like a 20-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> and that, nobody was going to come or not come to the matches based on the fact whether I was a junior or not. So, uh, Okay. So. Uh, well, speaking of Dr. Jerry Graham Sr., uh, I would love to hear, we would all love to hear, just about uh, the early days of how you got started. Like, what was the beginning of the wrestling journey for you? Well, it's kind of, uh, was well, a Herodimus that said, circumstances rule man. Man do not rule circumstances. Okay. I wanted to be a professional wrestler, but that, like kids want to be an airplane pilot or a cowboy or a policeman. But then I grew up and uh, got out of high school and went in the Army. And they say, put away the things of youth. It's time to get out and make a living. I had a nice family. So I took a job as a truck driver. And lo and behold, who was managing the gas station that serviced our trucks but Martino Angelo, the wrestling promoter from Toledo. Yes. <laughs> Circumstances controlling men. Wow. So so I uh, got to know him, and we had a liking for each other, so he started taking me down to the YMCA, which had a wrestling room at that time, and he, and he trained me to be a wrestler. And he introduced me to the original Sheik, who was the promoter in uh, Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, parts of Kentucky. They started me there. So I this started... was at a time when you needed to know somebody if you wanted to be a wrestler. Like, you, there was no, you know, there was an advertisement in a newspaper saying, you know, wrestling school. And well, so there and were so wrestling so. schools. Like I got it. Lou Klein right. had a wrestling school up in Allen Park, Michigan. They had a lot of good wrestlers come out of that school. But I'd already got into wrestling by the time I met Lou Klein. And uh, what, what he could have showed me, Angelo already showed me. I had like private sessions one-on-one. -on -one. So I think Angelo did a good job of getting me started. And about what year was this that you uh, met Angelo? Approximately. 71, 72, something like that. Okay. Who was the first match you had? After you got trained, it was in Ypsilanti, Michigan, against Leaping Lanny Poffo. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, a lot of people may or may not know he was the brother of Randy Savage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At that time, Randy Savage was also wrestling under the name of Poffo, Randy Poffo, and uh, with their father, Angelo Poffo. And they did a lot to help me get started early on in my career. Wow. Mm -hmm. Had you been familiar with the Poffo family before that, or what was it like meeting? Especially uh, the miser himself, Father Poffo, blanked on his name. But what was it like meeting those guys and working with them? Well, it was a kick. You know, I was refereeing. They started me out by refereeing because they said a way to learn is to watch the guys do it. And you can't watch any closer than being right on top of them. And I learned a lot about wrestling just watching. The first wrestling match I ever refereed was between George the Animal Steel and Tex McKenzie. Holy oh. <laughs> Man. I'm having a heart attack right now. I'm not going to lie. I feel like those are two gentlemen who would not infract a rule during their yeah. matches. There's probably no, no, wasn't much for you to do. Was, <laughs> see, I, I start out by intimidating Steel. <laughs> he knew that I meant business. So, yeah. so how long did you train for before you had your first match? Oh, well, I was refereeing, and I was uh, training, and I, it's been so long. I would say uh, seven, eight months. I, I, okay. It's been so long, I could be off on that. A lot of time in the gym I spent with uh, also the Wild Samoans, Afonseca, mm -hmm. and, of course, Randy Randy Poffel and uh, Lanny Poffel. And uh, even gentleman Saul Weingroff came over. I don't know if you remember him or not. He was an old-time yep. manager. He, he also helped and got me started. Well, because Angela got me started, but these guys were current. They could call promoters and get me matches and stuff. But Saul Weingroff actually got me my first match against Lanny Poffel. I went up there with a bag. I started traveling with the Poffos and Saul just to uh, 
be there in case somebody didn't show up looking for my first match. So Saul cut to the chase, and he says, Lanny says he'll wrestle twice tonight if you give Jerry a chance, So, and you don't have to pay him anything. And Luke Klein heard that. That was a, <laughs> he got an extra match. Yeah, but say that there's some uh, there's some stand up comedy in there too yeah, with the so bookers. That's a, well, they're both road warriors. Yeah, a lot of similarities. In those early days, I want to ask. Uh, I'm under the impression that you would sometimes do whatever you could to be part of the show, and I hear that you used to carry the Sheik's Cobra to the what well, was the Cobra Python? <laughs> it was python. A, it, was a, it was a boa constrictor. Boa constrictor. And uh, I wrestled a bear. One thing that always interested me... Uh, Who went I, over? You were the bear. Uh, well, me, of course. Uh, <laughs> I intimidated the bear with the same tactic I used on George Steele. <laughs> well, he was an animal, so... To get, to get used to the bear, they put him on a collar. They said, take him outside for a walk, and here's some Cokes. He likes Coca-Cola. So I'm out there with a bear, no trainer to help me. I'm just taking a bear. <laughs> Why am I doing this? And the bear goes, <laughs> so I give him a Coke, and he goes, <laughs> and throws the bottle down. And I walk him back in, he says, that's just you get used to it. And he says, a bear has been domesticated. I've raised him for a cub. Uh, you know, just, uh, bears are natural wrestlers. There's not much to train him. He'll think he's playing with you. And I got done with that uh, match. I had scratches. They had a muzzle on him. I didn't put anything on his claws. And I wrestled him twice, a Thursday in Toledo and a Saturday in Detroit. And I was just scratched from head to toe. Right. It, was, it was terrible. But uh, that's some of the things that I was willing to do that the next person wasn't willing to do. Well, those were the 70s. So that's, that's crazy. When you started working for the original Sheik, what was, that was known for being more of a sort of out there just because the Sheik himself was an out there character to begin with. What was some of, I would say, riots that you might have been a part of? Were you ever part of a riot in the um, Sheik's territory? I had started riots when I was a referee. Uh, <laughs> there was a program unfolded. There was a wrestler named Big Money Hank James. Mm -hmm. And uh, he always felt I was not being fair to him in a wrestling match. And it would actually start riots over what some people would perceive to be bad calls. I myself, of course, uh, <laughs> I know that I call him right down the middle. But one night it was between him and the Sheik, and uh, the next thing I know that uh, the, the Sheik had won the match, and uh, the place was going crazy. The police were trying to keep people from climbing in the ring. See, in the old days of wrestling, riots were part of what we did. But then came the lawsuits, and they came to be... Uh, they had to tone things down a bit. And back the first time I worked for Vince McMahon, I, I managed the team of uh, Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch. Oh man, jeez! <laughs> and they had, and they had. It was in Saint, it was in St. Louis. It was in St. Louis, and some fans started, you know, attacking them. So I jumped to my, you know, they were my partners, and the three of us started uh, punching it out with the fans. And Vince McMahon came over and says, "Get back to the dressing room." And then he later told us in a very nice way. He didn't yell at us. He says that they don't want that extreme amount of heat anymore because of lawsuits and stuff. People would say they'd come and say you incited a riot and I was there. I bought a ticket in good faith and I wasn't. Uh, and the way the, the correct way to sue somebody was you always sue the promotion for insufficient security. See, lawyers right. have to always take things roundabout. They can't say, hey, I bought a ticket and got hurt. You gotta have a, Why did you get hurt? Well, because Joe Blow hit me. No, it's because of insufficient security. And had it been sufficient, Joe Blow wouldn't have hit you. So that was... Uh, <laughs> How it went. I got sued uh, once in my life for uh, behavior like that, yeah. For people listening at home who might not know, what was the Sheik? Because there, there are many uh, imitators and other Sheiks. So what was oh. this Sheik's name? His name was Ed Farhat. And okay. he was from Williamston, Michigan. And he uh, he was uh, an innovator. I mean, he was the crazy man. The original crazy man was Wild Bull Curry. He came uh -huh. before the Sheik. 
but they were good friends. I believe the sheik was, uh, if I'm wrong, I apologize, but I think I heard somewhere that the original sheik was flying Fred Curry's godfather. But, uh, but the sheik was definitely, he had his own promotion and he, he did big business. He was an exciting, uh, wild man. Uh, and he, uh, and, and what was it like working for him or being part of his promotion? Well, he treated, he, he treated me really good at first. And uh, he had a ring set up in his backyard. It was a 100-mile drive to Williamston, Michigan. I used to drive up there and help train wrestlers with him and, and that sort of thing. And he had a big, huge house, which is now a bed and breakfast, with an indoor swimming pool. Mm-hmm. It was shaped like a horseshoe. It had seven bedrooms overlooking the indoor pool. And uh, it was a fantastic. Mm-hmm. But then later on, for some reason, which I could never figure out to this day, that she turned on me and uh, stopped using me and, uh, and then got mad when I went to work for a uh, competitive promotion, but I mean, I didn't leave and double cross him. I, I was fired at this day. I still don't know why. I know that in the uh, 70s, you'll know the year. Um, one At one point, you were named the Independent Wrestler of the Year. It was a uh, ratings. I was rated, they rated the Independent Wrestler. I guess it could be said. I okay, was, so I was you, number were, one. you were number one rated, rated Independent Wrestler. Yeah, yeah by uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Yeah. They, they, uh, they used to give all the ratings of different promotions, the WWF, NWA, and then they went doing the independence. Uh, so how did you become an independent wrestler, and what does that mean? Well, wrestling used to be uh, like organized crime. It was divided into territories, which they all respected. And uh, nobody would go into anybody else's territory. And if anybody did, they'd all band together. One time, Dick the Bruiser, who was a big independent, he didn't belong to any of the NWAs. He had his own WWA promotion. He said he wanted to go into Detroit. And what happened is the entire country took the Sheik's side and... Uh, the one show, the Bruiser ran the same night that the Sheik did. And one of the shows that the Sheik ran against the Bruiser, this is just some of the matches I remember. Terry Funk defended the belt against Ernie Ladd. Oh, my God. Wild Bull Curry and Fred Curry wrestled uh, mm. uh, Fabulous uh, fa- fabulous Kangaroos. Dusty Rhodes on the card. <laughs> uh, Freddie Blassie wrestled Mil Mascaris. Wow. Nice. This, is, this is all in one night. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 just threw the, they threw the book at the Bruiser, and the Bruiser still did four or 5,000 people. But, if, uh, if I can ask you, do you remember what the prices for tickets were? Yeah, two or three dollars. That's a, a sold out house at Cobo Hall, which would seat about 10,000 people, 10, 12,000 people, was uh, $52,000. Remember, that was a sellout, $52,000. Oh by today's standards, that'd be five hundred thousand dollars because the tickets would be fifteen, twenty bucks, not two or three. Right. Well, yeah. when, when you you mentioned Dick the Bruiser going in there, did you you worked for the WWA at one? At point? that time, I was with the Sheik. Okay. Later on, the Sheik fired me, and Flying Fred Curry started an independent promotion in Ohio, and I went to work for him. And later, we became partners. Okay. That's we had some great matches because. Uh, thing we featured was the Currys against the Grahams. It was Wild Bull Curry and Fred Curry against Dr. Jerry Graham and Jerry Graham Jr. Mm-hmm. And, and we went all over Ohio and did very well. Then the Bruiser uh, had a guy call me, a man named Les Ruffin, who also helped me a lot. He was a retired promoter, lived in Cincinnati, good friend of mine. I went to work for Bruiser, became uh, a top uh, main event wrestler there with tag team partner, Golden Boy Paul Christie. Yes. And... Uh, the first time I wrestled for Bruiser, I wrestled against uh, Valiant Brothers, Jimmy and Handsome Jimmy and Luscious Johnny Valiant. Wow. And, uh, I think I probably wrestled most of the big names from the 70s at one time or another. I got a pretty good resume on that. I didn't beat all of them. but, I, <laughs> yeah. but I, You I, stood I, in the ring with them. Yeah. Well, but, where does or how does the uh, original Dr. Jerry Graham enter the picture? Well, Dr. Jerry Graham was, uh, I'll tell you some how good he was when he was in his prime. The Sheik would always tell you what was wrong with wrestlers. 
And when he said, when Jerry Grayson came, he said, that guy knew what he was doing every minute in that ring. He said, he is just, he was just terrific. And Jerry Graham got to be friendly with Vince McMahon Sr. And he got Vince McMahon's ear and he gave him some ideas at work. So Vince Sr. would listen to Jerry Graham. And he had his brother, Eddie Graham, with him. And uh, the Graham brothers became such a huge attraction in the East Coast that Jerry said they were making between five and $10,000 a week in the 60s. Yes, that's incredible. <laughs> he said they'd go to, I think, Hartford, Connecticut, some town in Connecticut. He says that was every Saturday night. It always worth six to $800, that one that one wow. town. He says, plus Madison Square Garden was every third Monday and uh, so forth. He says, that, he, the place to be was uh, in New York then. Yeah. So how did you meet him? Well, he was wrestling for the Sheik on the way down. He was he was uh, he was past his prime, and he was just looking for work. And he, he got this idea. He, he pitched to me about me being his son, and just I wasn't doing anything. I had nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> we started, and that's when we went to work for the Currys. It's funny because that's how a lot of wrestling careers die today. <laughs> it was like, oh, they they just needed somebody to fill a spot. And... Well, the reason the Graham brothers got so famous is because the Fargo brothers. Mm -hmm. It was a big attraction in New York, and there was a big outdoor show in Washington, D.C., a ballpark filled up, and the Fargos told Vince Sr. they wanted more money or they weren't going to wrestle. That's called holding up the gate. There were people there to see the Fargos, so the promoter hasn't got much choice but to pay them the extra money they're looking for and then fire them. And Jerry Graham told Vince, you don't need him. I have a friend in Tennessee named Eddie Gossett. We'll make him Eddie Graham. We'll bring him up here, and we'll do better than the Fargos. And they did. They became the premier attraction. I would say the Graham brothers... 60s is what Hulk Hogan was in the 80s. They were huh. the absolute number one attraction in wrestling. Now, so I became, became part of the family. Jerry Graham himself has, and obviously you met him when his career was going a little bit downhill, but were some of the, could you say that some of the stories that were told about Jerry Graham, like driving in a pink Cadillac in New York, huh? lighting the cigars and everything, do those have merit? Yes. <laughs> I, I wrote a book, uh, Confessions of a Big Time Wrestler. It's an audio book, really. It was uh, pretty much what we're doing now. I talked about wrestling. But Jerry Graham, and I, I, had, I divided things into three groups. Factual things that I saw for myself, things that I believed would be true because credible sources told me they had seen them, and urban legends. This goes under credible sources. And the source was Flying Fred Curry uh, and Jerry Graham himself. Now, Jerry Graham was a showman extraordinaire. He's walking down the streets of Manhattan one day, and he comes to a shoe store. There's a big pair of golden cowboy boots, real gold, in the window as a, <laughs> as a attraction. So he goes, I want to buy the boots. He said, the boots aren't for sale because they're, they're just there to try. He said, everything's for sale. So he paid an exorbitant price. He put on these gold cowboy boots with a suit and tie. He then went to the Copacabana, and he told the band there, every time I walk in, the second I walk in, you stop playing the music, you hit me with a spotlight to play all oh, them golden slippers while I walk to the to my table, and then uh, I'll take out a cigar and light it with a $100 bill. And he says, you get $100 each every time that, and this is 60s now. Yeah, yeah. Every, every time that happens. And he always kept, his, he always kept his word. And there'd be Broadway stars there saying, what's going on? Tony Randall said, they don't do that for me. I said, like, well, they don't do that for me, you know. All the big stars are Florence Olivier says, they don't do that for me. But Jerry Gay walked in with a all them golden slippers and walk to sit down. He was he was big. I mean, he, he didn't know how to get attention to himself. That in itself, he said, well, it costs a lot of money. But when the New York Times prints a story the next day, how, yeah. much, how much is that worth? So my, my question I was going to ask, and you're talking about holding up the uh, you know holding up the territory for for more money. I understand that somebody like Ernie Ladd used to like walk around the ring like before a show. Um, I did I did hear a um, a former wrestler talk about that. And so the audience would see him. 
and then go to the back to the promoter and say, you know, hey, I feel like I'm a big part of this reason. You know, I'm a big part of why we have a sold out show here tonight. I deserve more money. And it's not like they can say, oh, well, Ernie Ladd's plane was held up. He can't make here make it here today. Everyone saw him there. I've, How often was I've, that I've, happening? I've, I've never seen him do that. I knew, okay. I knew Ernie Ladd pretty well. I'm not going to say he didn't. I just I've never yeah. saw him. This is the first I've heard about it. Okay. I just I, I don't know. I can't comment on that. Okay, but I mean, was that something wrestlers would do though? They would hold up, you know, well, frequently. Well, I know or? one time in Lima, Ohio, we had a really big house, and the main event was going to be a uh, a cage match between uh, Bobo Brazil and uh, Calypso Jim against Don Kent and I in a, in a cage match. I was the promoter. I was partners with Dick the Bruiser. Bruiser wasn't there, so I was in charge. So I was managing Chris Carter against Flying Fred Curry. When I came that, Bobo had gotten an argument with Bulldog Don Kent, who was my tag team partner, but also my employee because he, he wasn't part of the promotion. And he, was, and he walked out on me. And he went out to the audience and told everybody he was leaving because of the promotion wasn't treated right. And so... Uh, we had somebody else uh, take his place. I forget who, and nobody asked for their money back. We just made sure that that match was really, really, really a barn burner. But uh, that was disappointing because Bobo was a good friend of mine. He did a lot to help me as well early in the career. But some people uh, get sensitive, whatever. When I started my promotion, I didn't hear this myself. I'll put this under credible sources, though. Bobo, Brazil, told people he won't last six months. He doesn't know what he's doing. So we lasted for several years. And what put us out was what put everybody else out. Vince McMahon and Ted Turner taking over the whole country. There wasn't room for small promotions. One of those guys we could still stay in business. That was Dick the Bruce's opinion. But when you got two promotions, big like that, with national exposure coming into your town, each coming in uh, three times a year at six months, it's your, uh, uh -huh. you're not going to do well. So we just closed it down. We did not go broke, though. We had a surplus of funds when we closed. We paid everybody off, and then we split up what money we had left. But we just we, It's like when you fall off the Empire State Building. It was, it was all just Huxley that first observed inevitable consequences are beacons for wise men and scarecrows for fools. When you get to the 50th floor of the Empire State Building, you don't say it doesn't hurt yet. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the fool. <laughs> inevitable consequence. So, um, you mentioned Bobo Brazil. What was it? He's a legend in the business. Yep. Great, question. One of the greatest. And there's actually film of you on YouTube. Fighting or wrestling Bobo Brazil. And body slamming him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I watched it before it came. And it's fantastic. What was he like to work with? Beautiful. He just knew what he was doing. It was really funny. I don't, I don't know how much time we got. I got so many stories. but We have my, time for the story. <laughs> my, my, favorite, my favorite Bobo Brazil story was this. We were in Indianapolis. We would go down there every second Tuesday and do interviews for every town at the Indianapolis Territory. Mm -hmm. We'd do it for Fort Wayne, for... Hammond for Chicago for everything. So when he, we get down there and Bruiser says, Dick the Bruiser says, well, we're going to start going into Springfield, Illinois. <laughs> so uh, I can't make it. So we're not going to do too well with me not on the card. So we'll just put the Bobo Brazil and Jerry Graham as the first main event to get things started. Then I'll come in on a second show and we'll really pack the place. Okay. So <laughs> when all the interviews were done, they, they were going to do four weeks worth of interviews for Springfield, Illinois. So the first interview, Bobo Brazil says, um, I love Springfield, Illinois. It's my second home from Benton Harbor. When I get down to Springfield, Illinois, I feel like I'm home. All the people down there are so good to me, and they make me feel so good. He says, I'm going to just give it my best. I know this Jerry Graham's a tough man, and I know I have to be at my best game, but I'm going to do it. So I came out and says, you know, Bobo Brazil's a legend, but he's only told you half the truth. The reason he was in Springfield, Illinois, is he'd been beaten up so badly by my father, Jerry Graham, in Madison Square Garden, 
that he was ashamed to go home to Benton Harbor, so he took a job at Springfield, Illinois, shining shoes at the Greyhound bus station. And that, <laughs> and that was why he was there. So then the next week, because we're doing four weeks, one way after other, Sam Meneker, one of the greatest commentators of all time, he says, uh, you know, last week, Jerry Graham had some hard words for you about uh, you and Springfield. He says, well, I'm going to tell you something. What he said was partially true. His father hurt me bad, and I swore I was going to get him. So I left New York when I got out of the hospital. I went to Chicago, and I missed him by five days. I heard he was in Los Angeles. So I flew to Los Angeles. Day and a half, he'd gone to Japan. So I flew to Japan. I missed him by 12 hours. <laughs> he says, I chased him down to Australia, and I lost the scent. He says, but now I know what's going on now. It's all clear. He's sending a boy to do a man's job. And if that's the way we're going to play it. Okay, so you can see where you start. The place, one of the most overworked used in wrestling is sellout. But that night, in spite of Dick the Bruiser not being on the show, <laughs> the fire marshal had to cut the show off. Wow. So it was a legitimate sellout. It's not a sellout until people with money get turned away. I had one sellout here in Toledo where they got turned away as well. But uh, uh, usually people look at a big house and say, boy, it was a sellout, but they're not really a sellout because there's two seats that didn't sell us. But it was, uh, it was absolutely a sellout. And we had the match. It was a draw. And you think they would bring us back on the next show, but instead they gave Bobo a different opponent and me a different opponent. And Dick the Bruiser came back with uh, Bruiser Brody, or they call him King Kong Brody, and uh -huh. because of um, beating my two bruisers. But that, that was uh, <laughs> Bobo Brazil. Yeah, he, uh, we worked together good. We're going to take a short break for an announcement, but when we come back, we're going to ask Dr. Jerry Graham about his promotion, his television show Bruiser Bedlam, and also what it was like meeting Andre the Giant. Dan and I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you about an upcoming appearance of the Action Comedy Nerd Show live show at the 6th Annual NE Geek Expo. Yeah, the 6th Annual NE Geek Expo is going to be taking place October 22nd from 11 to 7 at the Spire Institute in Geneva, Ohio. Uh, it's definitely going to be a lot of fun. Uh, this is the only place where under one roof you can get comics, sci-fi, fantasy, anime, cosplay, martial arts, Vikings, steampunks, and much more geek-tastic stuff for your busy day. Uh, it's only $5, like I mentioned, 11 to 7. You can't beat that. And uh, somewhere on the schedule, you'll find the Action Comedy Nerd Show live show. Yes, you will, with Jerry Jaffe and Dangerous Dan Brown. It's the Action Comedy Nerd Show. Well, we're back for our interview with wrestling legend Dr. Jerry Graham. With me is my co-host Dan Brown. And Dangerous Dan Brown. Dangerous Dan Brown <laughs> and uh, wrestling interview expert Ray Highclack. I try. These, I will say these men have shown uh, a good knowledge of the inside of the wrestling business. I'm very impressed. Usually I get stuck with a bunch of dummies when I... Uh, <laughs> if yeah, if I can ask, if, if we interviewed you 30 years ago with the knowledge that we have, about the wrestling business and like a little bit of like knowing how the inside works, how crazy would that drive other professional wrestlers? You know what I mean? If if somebody from the outside somehow got information about the inside, well, we we just wouldn't uh, talk about the inside. Uh, okay. Don't say you're going, you're going, you're crazy. Or, but the thing is, one thing that Vince McMahon did. I'd like to spend some time with him later if we get a chance. But, uh, oh, he's, uh, believe me, I'm going to ask you about <laughs> it. He, uh, he just said, just stop insulting the people's intelligence and, and tell them what's going on. And it worked. It yeah. worked. So right now, since Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, and all the biggest stars of the business have gone on all the national TV shows and correctly described the inside of the business, I have no qualms. <laughs> Although I was 
I was sworn to secrecy as a young man about that we don't say anything. We can lie in court to protect Russell, I was told. Uh, <laughs> under no circumstances are you to ever admit that there's anything going on. Uh, but now it's uh, the whole thing's have changed. I don't see any reason for me not to contribute to the history of wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know. If you saw maybe a fan or like there was always those regulars that would come around who you knew that they were there every week. Mm-hmm. And maybe kind of struck up a relationship with as like a friend or something like that. Would you acknowledge to them that they, hey, I know what you you know and I know. No, no, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't kill the the spirit at the at the show. I mean, it's like going to a movie and like, did you know that Luke Skywalker is Darth Vader's son? Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you don't want to. Rule you don't spoil it. I would. Yeah. I'd be totally in character for the matches. Well, I, I, I would. You know, it'd be comparable to going to a magic show and then sitting in the audience explaining to someone how the tricks go. Yeah, yeah. it's just something yeah. to do. Or going to a comedy show and beating the guys to the punchlines, <laughs> which got me thrown out of a burlesque show once years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've had conversations with certain comedians that won't do anything but their own material. And I said, that's why I can't be a comedian, because all I do is steal other people's jokes when I tell, for for just social joke telling and stuff. But I could see there's a point to having them that nobody in the audience can beat you to the punchline. So these are these old vaudeville type burlesque comedians. I I won't say as good as, but the Abbott Costello type, the straight man, the funny man, and the. And so I, I was sitting there beating the They finally threw me out of there. <laughs> you mentioned Dick the Bruiser a couple of times. So you and he were involved in what was known as Bruiser Bedlam. Yes, that was a promotion that we started here. We uh, did very well with it. We did well in Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. And uh, it was called Bruiser Bedlam because the concept of the show was Dick the Bruiser was the color commentator. He didn't wrestle on the show. And he, he would sit there and... Uh, with Terry Sullivan, another top-notch uh, wrestling commentator. We had matches, and we told stories and did programs. They call them storylines today. They call them programs in the old days. We were all kinds of programs, cutting clips of Jim's hair, uh, beating up Sam Botek, having him take it That was our sponsor from Miller Beer. We beat up the sponsor, and I didn't take it out and stretch her in an ambulance and woo-woo-woo down the street. With the, we kept things going pretty well, and we did a lot of business. This is... Uh, uh, I'm not going to get too involved here, but there's several times in my life I had some very successful businesses going where the man being the authority figure, when we had this uh, wrestling going at the Hotel Sofitel, we were packing the place. Which we was in making, downtown Toledo. Yeah, making a lot of money, and downtown Toledo was in trouble. So I started running wrestling there. A, a fellow here named Tom Sala uh, started running pro boxing. He had one show there where he had 10 former current world champions in the audience, including Tommy Hearns. I mean, nice. but then Trust Corps Bank, used to be Toledo Trust Bank, who was financing uh, Sofitel, and one of the provisions of the uh, mortgage was they could control what went into the bank room. So they had us thrown out. We thought that we were too low class for a high class hotel like the Sofitel, but we did go to the Chase Hotel in St. Louis, which made the Sofitel look like a red roof inn. And that's been, a, they had traditional wrestling there from the 40s through the 90s. They finally put it in the 90s. That's where I got the idea. It was a ballroom of a, of a fancy hotel. And anyway, so I'm, we were bringing hundreds of people to downtown Toledo on a Sunday night that bought meals at restaurants, that bought alcohol in bars. And, they, and, and the city fathers of this, we can't have this. So they put in dinner theater instead. <laughs> they closed it before the first act. Uh, yeah. And we had boxing. And this, oh, both of these shows, by the way, were being televised. And we had just started, I remember, going all over the Midwest. 
And we, we started off with saying, from the beautiful Hotel Sofitel in downtown Toledo, it's Bruiser Bedlam Wrestling. And we were starting to get mail. What's your schedule? We want to come to Toledo. We want to stay at the Hotel Sofitel. We want to see the matches. And so we just started to get the word out to become a wrestling hub of the Midwest. And they, and the field shut us down. You go downtown, look, you see the big skid row. Now, did you and Bruiser both booked the ter- the the shows itself. Did he use his contacts with, say, Vern Gagne and the AWA to bring guys to Toledo? Oh, not to Toledo, no, but he did Indianapolis. Okay. Uh, uh, by that time, uh, Vern Gagne was uh, trying to fight with Vince McMahon because he had yeah. he had a lot of cities and stuff, but uh, he had Hulk Hogan, and, and, and McMahon stole Hulk Hogan from Vern Gagne, and uh, that was the whole thing was the Bard of Avon. William Shakespeare said, no amount of planning can take the place of dumb luck. Hulk Hogan was the second person they chose to do the Rocky picture. The first person was a wrestler named Ox Baker, who turned it down because he said there wasn't enough money in it for him because he had been an escape from New York with Kurt Russell. So he was experienced. So Hulk Hogan got that spot in the Rocky picture just because of Ox Baker's bad judgment. That's what made him. And uh, Vince McMahon realized it, and I don't think uh, Vern Gagne fully realized the impact that uh, Hulk Hogan made. That is what made Hogan... A big star was at Rocky Three, and uh, then Vince knew what to do from there. Yeah. It has been suggested that WrestleMania Three, when Andre the Giant wrestled Hulk Hogan, was kind of like the dividing line between old school wrestling and modern contemporary wrestling. I don't know if that's absolutely true or not. Uh, it was the one that most people talked about uh, because Andre the Giant uh, was slammed by Hulk Hogan, but if you watch YouTube, did you see Kamala slamming uh, Andre the Giant? That's yes. on YouTube. Much better slam. Yeah. He slammed, oh, yeah. he slammed Andre much better than Hogan Agreed. did. Uh, you got to understand that Hogan was a acquaintance of mine. I won't say friend. I got, we never socialized together, but we would sit and talk in the dressing room. I used to see him in, in Chicago and in St. Louis and in Detroit. And I even gave him a ride to the airport in Detroit. After the movie, he became really an arrogant, conceited... Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he, he wouldn't even talk to me in New Orleans. He just brushed me aside. He was just, uh, well, there's an old saying, though, uh, in all forms of show business, not just wrestling. Remember the people you meet on the way up because you're going to meet them again on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where Hogan's at now. He's, he's not He opened up a restaurant in Tampa, Florida, which is okay. He had a name. Hulk Hogan's restaurant's not a bad idea. No, not but bad. I talked to people when he says every picture on the wall was him. <laughs> now, you were thinking about some of your opponents. Uh, you know, mix up, I mean, Obviously, he was the theme of the thing, but maybe a picture of him and Andre together, maybe a picture of, but it was just all pictures of him. It was just all me, me. People came in there, and they, they got narcissistic vibes. They just didn't like the place. There's a store in Florida he runs that has a statue of him outside. Yeah, It's crazy. <laughs> well, even if that was okay, but when you go in, you want a mixture. I mean, if I was going to have a Jerry Graham restaurant, which, heaven forbid, I wouldn't want a restaurant. I had one once. <laughs> But I, I would make it a mixture of uh, of wrestlers and stuff for my period sure. of time in that. That's, that's what I would do. But. Yeah. You so also, getting, oh, you go, Dan. Uh, so I'm guessing you didn't see Hogan's sex tape then, huh? Well, I saw what they put on YouTube all the time. Oh, okay, yeah. Out and stuff. I mean, they cut out the part where Jimmy Hart comes running out of the closet with the big old horn screaming at the lady. But uh, That's a joke, right? It's an attempt to be. It was a nice bomb. We'll put air quotes around the word joke just there. Besides... Hulk Hogan, WrestleMania three was Andre the Giant. You've yeah. met Andre the Giant before also? Well, you know, that's an interesting story because uh, you may or may not know, we have pretty knowledgeable wrestling people here helping with the interview. A courtesy that I learned in wrestling way back in the 70s is when you go to a new territory, a new place where you haven't been before and people don't know you, courtesy, you shake hands and introduce yourself to each other. And that was 
pretty much standard in the business. Now, the first time I was going to referee that match between George Steele and Tex McKenzie, that was like an audition. They're going to see if I could referee or not. So I walk in the dressing room, think of how lower, lower can you get? I was the guy who was auditioning for the referee's job. I was <laughs> less than a worm in the dust. Yeah. I mean, the first person in that dressing room to get up and walk across the room and shake hands and introduce himself to me was Andre the Giant. And I never forgot that because as the years rolled along and I met people, I always shook hands until I met, I was in Huntington, West Virginia. I went to shake hands with Oldie Anderson and he looked at my hand like it was infected or something and then just turned away. I, uh, very, very rude, very rude person. I hear he has health issues now. I pray for him to get better. I don't want anybody to be sick, but he was in fact a jerk. <laughs> would, would you say Andre the Giant was a locker room leader? To, to everybody, I mean. Well, he was an inspiration, but Andre Giant was a very quiet person. He, he'd sit and talk to people, but he never, uh, I wouldn't consider him a leader, but he didn't have to be because at the time he was the biggest attraction in wrestling. I mean, he was, it was the Seattle Seahawks. One of the NFL football teams drafted him to play, and there was a picture of him with his arm making like muscle with a quarterback sitting on his arm. Mm -hmm. And Vince McMahon Sr. bought his contract back because he was afraid he'd get hurt playing football and ruin it for, so Andre's thinking if he played a year in NFL football, it'd help his uh, image, but somebody could clip him in the knee from behind, and that would be the end of, uh, That'd be the end of him. his wrestling career. So yeah. the story I heard, and this is, a, I consider credible, I don't know for a fact, but that Vince Sr. bought his contract back because he didn't want him playing in the NFL. But he was a, a big man, a nice man. Everybody respected him. He commanded respect, but he more or less just sat there, and, and, and uh, that's why I was so impressed. He got up and walked over and shook my hand because usually he just sat there, but he saw a new face. And that was what, what it was. Everybody else, would, I've never heard a bad word said about that man. And believe me, in wrestling, everybody's got a bad word to say about somebody all the time. And I'm telling you, I've never heard one bad word about Andre the Giant from anybody in the business. 40 years in the business, I've never heard one bad word about him. Well, in that story, um, the name of Vince McMahon has come up for the third or fourth time. Mm -hmm. We haven't actually talked about him. some ways, he is the looming figure of modern professional wrestling. What well, would you say about his... Well, Vince McMahon Jr., is a person that I don't like, okay? I don't like the way he does business. I don't like the way I was treated in his promotion. And no, because I was fired is not the reason. We'll get back to that in a minute. Vince McMahon Jr. is the greatest wrestling promoter that ever lived. You can say both. You can say Lee Harvey Oswald was the greatest shot that ever lived and not have a... And, wow. And not, I like wow. it. Wow, very good comparison. <laughs> and not like what uh, he did, but... Uh, most people don't realize what he did to become the greatest promoter. And why do I call him the greatest promoter? Because when I started in the business way back in the early 70s, I was told by the old timers, a promotion success is based on how much money it takes and how many butts go in the seats, who takes in the most money. And that was without question Vince McMahon Jr. So he is, I'm sure he doesn't lose any sleep at night because I don't, I don't like him. <laughs> I'll get to why in a minute. But he, his genius was not that he was a good wrestling promoter, which he was, about making matches, the right guys against the right guy, the correct storylines, whatever you want to call it. We call them programs. But it was, he did all that. But what he did was he recognized the upcoming technology. He recognized the potential of satellite television shows and pay-per-views. Years ago, Terry Funk told me, this would be a great business if the towns would come to us so that we have to go to the towns for a long <laughs> car ride. Well, guess what? Vince McMahon, with his pay-per-view, he made the towns came to us. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Funk's wish became a reality when Vince McMahon started this. Instead of what we would do is we'd do something where somebody got mad at somebody and would show the same tape in every town and have matches in every town. Well, a lot of people don't remember, but Sports Illustrated in the 70s 
did a story that professional wrestling then was the biggest spectator sport in the country, selling more tickets than NFL football, NBA basketball, Major League Baseball, because it was a 52-week sport, and every night of the year there was maybe 10, 12, 15 towns running, so you accumulate all those ticket purchases together. Mm -hmm. So what Vince McMahon's idea was, let's get all these guys, instead of going to the local National Guard Army, let's get them all in their homes watching on pay-per-view, and even if it was 40 bucks, and if you're going to pay five bucks a ticket, five, six guys are going to spend much so they could just go to somebody's house and chip in. And that, uh, a lot of them have parties for these pay-per-views. WrestleMania, WrestleMania 2 were okay. WrestleMania 3 went through the roof. Vince had a lot of nerve. He put up a lot of money that he could have lost. He made it, and he became very, very successful. Now, one thing about Vince Mann, I, McMahon, uh, I went to work for him, and as usual, I went to him with full... Guns, I always work hard for the people I work for. If they sent me to Kuwait, I was able to tour the Middle East. Wow. And I had some towns around here, and he was the best paying promoter. The few times I worked for him, paid good. But they wanted me to be a manager, and so they had me show up at this Chase Hotel, which we talked about earlier in St. Louis, and I managed Big John Studd and the tag team of Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch. And then when it was over, I went home, and uh, I got a call. My secretary at uh, my business, which I had, the Tyler Meat Company, said, you got a message here from the WWF that said, don't bother coming back. And I thought that was a very poor way to fire somebody. Yeah. Well. I, I had to wow. hear it from my secretary. But it just shows, you know, uh, this man is very successful, but, you know, he was born in the Carolinas, raised by his mother, so he's still, you, you can't take the hillbilly out of the guy. He just, uh, <laughs> he, had, <laughs> he, he had, he was a wrestling genius. He was a wrestling genius. He knew how to make money. He recognized the technology. But he just was a, a, and there's no excuse for it because his father was very well liked in the business. Yeah. People yes. liked Vince McMahon Sr. But Vince McMahon Jr. enjoyed being a jerk, enjoyed uh, taking, uh, I've been involved in businesses besides wrestling, and I've had to fire people time to time. It's one of my least favorite things to do, except when I caught them stealing. But sometimes the person just couldn't do the job right, and they were trying, and it was really hard for me to do. But for him to call my secretary, I'm sure Vincent called personally, but to have his people call my secretary at my business and leave a message that I was fired, this shows uh, the lack of sophistication and class that uh, that he has. But he, I'll still stand by the fact that he was the greatest promoter of them all, and he doesn't lose any sleep that I don't like him. <laughs> well, I would always thought that your um, genius at wrestling, above all of your other talents and skills, but even one step above all of those, was your knowledge of crowd psychology and generating heat. Yeah, well, I was taught that. I, I probably had somewhat of a natural, I got my uh, PhD training in Hawaii. Now, all these men I talked about earlier, the Martino Angelo, the Pafo, Saul Weingroff, they were teaching me holds, how to grab a headlock, how to grab a wrist lock, how to do this, how to do that. And I, I got, then I was working, I was already wrestling in main events when I got to Hawaii, but I got to sit on the beach for six weeks with, King Curtis Iakea uh -huh. and Lord James Blears. Uh -huh. yep. They never touched me, but they told me, if you do this, you'll get a great result. If you do that, you'll get a great result. Don't do this, the people won't like it. And for six weeks, every day, I, we only wrestled two days a week in Hawaii. And it was the best tour there was because I spent most of the time on the beach, got a great tan and, uh, <laughs> and, and got to sit with two absolute legends of the business that knew every possible thing there was. And I called that my PhD training. When I came back, go to promoters and before I started my own promotion, I said, I'd really like to try this or that because King Curtis told me it would work or, or Lord Blears told me it would work and, and it did. So ring psychology is uh, it's tricky things. A lot of guys... Uh, don't understand it. Just a year or so ago, I, I resigned from a promotion that uh, I wasn't happy with. 
we had a bunch of young guys there that think because they could throw a drop kick or do a back flip off the top rope, that they were top-notch professionals. I was trying to teach them. I didn't charge them. In fact, I was paying them. I was trying to make them better. And I'd get a bunch of lip, a bunch of heart, a bunch of somebody come back to me and say, yeah, so-and-so is complaining about it. So-and-so doesn't like the match you laid out for them, so they've changed everything. Can you think of a, a match that exemplifies, a match that you were involved in in mm -hmm. your career that exemplifies your knowledge, our approach to crowd psychology and generating heat? Well, there's a few, but one that comes to my mind was in uh, back to Springfield, Illinois again. It was a December 26th show, the day after Christmas, and these two little girls that are about oh, 12 or 13 with the glasses, that, what do they say, they're so ugly they're cute when they get to be that age, then they grow up to be beautiful women. They had chipped in their money and it's bought in Spike Huber a nice warm-up suit, really nice, and they came into the ring and they, they uh, got it for him for Christmas and he took it out and he put it on and everybody's cheering and Paul Chris and I came running out. We knocked him down and we ripped the thing to shreds. The girls started crying and the place became hysterical. The police couldn't even hold the, the crowd back. Yep. And we got back to the dressing room and I said, just get out of here. I didn't wrestle that. I had my suitcase and my street clothes. I was still in my trunks. I'm running to my car and I get in and that, in those days they had a commercial on TV saying, thank you Delco or guys out in a blizzard and he's just praying his car will start. Mm -hmm. So I said, thank you Delco <laughs> my car started and I had to leave. Then we came back with a tag match that just had the place, place packed. Another time I had, uh, we were in uh, Circleville, Ohio and there was a wrestler named Bobby Fulton who you may or may not know from the yep. Fantastics. Yep. He was only 16 years old at the time and he was part of the high school booster club that put this show on and since he put it on, he wanted to referee the match. So here's a 16-year-old kid refereeing the match and uh, against the Currys, against the Grahams. And when uh, he disqualified the, the Grahams, the Currys left the ring, and we beat up his kid, 16 years old. And once again, there the crowd was around the ring. There was no way out, so the Currys came back. And they grabbed us. They said, get out of the way, guy. And they beat us back to the dressing room to save us from, to save us from being killed. Well, that, was, that was a common tactic, too, is the heels, if they... If the heels were like about to think the baby faces would grab them mm -hmm. and beat them up, that way the fans would be like, "Oh, and, they and got them!" And as they were beating, we were moving closer to the dressing room. <laughs> yeah, we're saying, get, "Get out of the way!" The guy that started me, Martino Angelo, one time Chris Carter and I had just won a tag match by infracting the rules, and he came in the ring and told the referee what had happened, and uh, the referee uh, reversed the decision and gave it to the uh, uh, other team. So I beat up Angelo. He's 85 years old. He snapped his head. His glasses flew across the ring. He got this confused look on his face. And uh, uh, once again, they, they had there's so many different times that uh, Erwin and Kelly, Wojo was going to wrestle the two morning drive time disc jockeys from a rock and roll station, Bob and Brian. And so the, the, the afternoon girl was named Ann Kelly. She was going to be their manager. So I started calling her Jezebel. She's a sinner. She's a, she shouldn't even be allowed around decent men like Wojo and me. So... At the end of the match, everybody's fighting, so I, I, I knocked her down and kicked her in the stomach. And I told her, when I kick you, I want you to pretend you're going into labor. And she did it perfectly. And once again, the crowd's trying to <laughs> trying to get into the ring and, and kill us. And uh, I kicked the woman in the stomach. So that's... <laughs> oh, the best one of all. No, I don't know the best one of all. I can rate them. But another really good one. There's a, an attorney here in Toledo named John Richardson that worked out at Torrio's gym. He had never been to pro wrestling before, and he met Wojo and I. So he came. He brought his kids down to the matches, not knowing what to expect. At the end of the match, midget wrestler Farmer Pete, same thing as Angela, came to the ring to tell him what uh, we had done to unfairly win the match. So Wojo held Farmer Pete down. Remember, he's a midget, and I beat the hell out of him. And, and the, place, the, the, place, 
the place went crazy. And the next Monday, uh, Richardson goes into the gym and he tells Dick Torrio, who was a physical trainer, not a wrestling trainer, but a weight, weights and stuff. He did a really good job helping me too. He says, they beat up a midget. And Torrio <laughs> said, somebody has to beat them up. <laughs> what would you say was some of the, from your experience in the territories that you worked in, some of the best heat getters out of all the guys you've worked with? Well, okay, that's a, that's a good question. Besides me, I would say uh, Wild Bull Curry. Mm-hmm. I would say The Sheik. I would say uh, there was a team called the Hells Angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't that good, but there was a team called the Chain Gang. It was the same thing, but each man got hurt, so they teamed up Hells Angels Chain Gang. I saw them get extremely good heat. Um, before before we completely run out of time, I know that uh, Dan and Ray are young wrestling fans. Yes. They're not old like me. And uh, I know they just want to ask you about three or four of the other personalities you've met. So I'm going to do like a kind of a lightning round where we're just going to ask you quickly about four or five, six people. If you have an opinion, a story, if you want to say no comment, whatever you want to you know, say. I, you know, I'm old too. Yes. I'm so old when a girl tells me no, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I would like to go first, just okay, because you've mentioned several times the great Wojo. What do you What do you want to say about Wojo? What do you think of when you hear his name? Thirteen time national AAU, fourteen time national AAU champion, NCAA champion. He's one of the greatest shoot wrestlers of all time, uh, and he never got a break because everybody was scared to wrestle him. He would have been a tremendous asset to the WWF, but uh, it wasn't to be. Okay, Dan. Um, Bill Apter. Bill Apter is the, like the premier wrestling uh, writer and photographer, and he's been doing it for many, many years. I used to read his stuff when I was a kid, so uh, he's definitely entrenched, as, and he loves the business. He treats the business very fairly, and I, he's a good man. Mm-hmm. Vern Gagne. Vern Gagne was the only promoter that thanked me for coming to his promotion. He said, really? thank you for coming, yes. He was a gentleman through and through. I want to ask you about uh, Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes was a little full of himself, but he... Uh, he, he drew some money, and he, uh, he uh, had great interviews, mm-hmm. and I wrestled him once in Detroit, and I, I thought he was a pretty good wrestler. I think his wrestling skills were adequate, but it was his charisma and personality that got him his success, but he was very, very successful. And one time after I wrestled him in Detroit, he took me to the Greek restaurant and bought my dinner that night. So okay. I'll have nothing bad to say about Dusty Rhodes. Good. One of your most famous protégés, if I might use the word, is Scott Steiner. Yep, I started Scott Steiner right here in Toledo. Yeah. What do you think about him? I think he's a big jerk. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you why. I started him in the wrestling business. I got him started. I didn't charge him a penny. Most guys charge people to teach him how to wrestle. I did not charge Scott Steiner anything. He got started, and he went on to bigger and better Things we don't. Time is not permitting, but when he said, "What do I owe you for teaching me to wrestle?" I said, "You don't owe me anything as far as money is concerned, but I think you're going to be a big star. And if the opportunity ever comes for you to help me out, I expect you to return the favor." And the opportunity did. I heard about it. They they asked. They had a meeting in Georgia. I'll tell you real quick. We're looking for a manager. We're looking for a manager. It's never been on national TV before. One that can get involved in six man tag. In other words, they described my resume. And Steiner just sat there, mm-hmm. didn't say a word, never called me. A lot of the guys I've trained will call me once or twice a year. I don't expect them to send me any money. I don't expect them to kiss my butt. I expect just, I like to hear from them once in a while to see sure. what's going on. Uh, Sam Muchnick, if I may ask. He was uh, super guy St. Louis. Uh, everybody looked up to him. At one time, he was the most powerful man in wrestling. And Dick the Bruiser told me that St. Louis was always the best wrestling town in the country. He said New York would be up and down, Detroit would be up and down, Chicago would be up and down. But St. Louis was kind of like a semi-territory where he brought all the big stars in from all the other territories. 
They did very well there. He was a real smart man and very respected. And this fan. one's not a name, but it's three letters: ECW. ECW Extreme Championship Wrestling. That's where they went overboard with uh, with uh, vicious stuff, mm -hmm. brutal stuff. Well, the only thing I, I guess I can't say too much because that was my style of, of a lot of blood, a lot of stuff. But the one thing I have against it, it was successful. They're more successful than I ever was because they got on the national TV and then was able to sell out to Vince McMahon. But the only thing I had against it was every match was like that. Uh -huh. Now, the Sheik told us, do not fight outside the ring. I don't want anybody using any gimmicks. I, I want, we're saying, well, geez, well, he does it. And then finally I realized one day that's why we weren't supposed to do it. <laughs> if everybody does it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make anything special. That's right. When a main event is... Uh, mm -hmm. And that's something I had trouble getting across to guys in this last promotion. I'd say I want to... I told these one guys I want to see a Sheik Abdullah the Butcher match. They both gave me blank looks. And uh, one guy said, well, we're supposed to be wrestling. I said, okay, I want this to be a street fight. I don't want to see one hold. I want to see uh, some tables. I want to see chairs. I want to see it tearing the place apart. So they start off, like I said, and the place is going crazy. And then the one guy grabs an arm lock on the guy and slows the match down. Even the commentator says, well, this match just took, a, on TV, this match just took a strange turn. <laughs> uh, just as soon as he grabbed that. that uh, well, speaking yep. of your association with matches like that, I mean, I think of you as being associated with a famous barbed wire match. Well, we had several of those. Uh, one was on the computer on uh, YouTube. YouTube, but they took it off because somebody, the copyright infringement. But I had the copyright. It was my show, and somebody else put it on, and I didn't care. I mean, yeah. nobody's going to pay to see Bruiser Bedlam tapes again. I, I mean, it's uh, yeah. to me it was fine that they get shown. So, so somebody who had no business complaining complained, and they took it off. I'd like to put it back on, but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> right, uh, that's your job. Yeah, maybe I would love. To, I got yeah. one that I want to ask. Oh, sorry, sir. Big time to really ask is Terry Funk. What's your opinion on Terry Funk? I think he was one of the greatest wrestlers of his time of any time. He was so. Good. You know what a moonsaw is? Yes. Okay. Well, tell He'd, people at home what a moonsaw is. A moonsaw is when you slam your opponent into the ring, you get up on the top corner with your back to the ring, and you do a backflip and land on your chest on, on the man. He did his first one when he was 55 years yep. old. Yeah. 55 years old. <laughs> he, he changed with the time. He could do hardcore wrestling like ECW. Uh, he, could, he could do scientific wrestling. He, he, I, I, I know Terry slightly, somewhat. He's always been a uh, gentleman to me. I got a picture of he and I on, on uh, the internet. But he was always in that ring. I wrestled him in Detroit. I wrestled his brother too, and they were just absolutely so good. I can't, I can't talk highly enough of either one, Terry or, or Dory Jr. They're both mm -hmm. excellent. What about the Undertaker? Opinions on the Undertaker. I don't know if you know him personally. Well, he wrestled for me one time here when he was Mean Mark Callis before he became the Undertaker. <laughs> yeah. All right. Wow. Okay. And uh, he did a good job. I, I never met him. I, I don't really have an opinion. I've, uh -huh. never, I've never heard any bad stories okay. about him. Or anything. Um, the Hart family. Oh, they're terrific. Good. Ross Hart is a friend of mine. He, he didn't make it. Didn't go as far as the uh, as Owen and. Uh, what was the other kid's name? Uh, uh, Brett. Bret Hart, yeah. He, he, was, he was a good wrestler, too. As a matter of fact, I saw him the last time I went to the Cauliflower Alley. I says, well, here's Ross Hart, the king of the royal family of Canadian wrestling. He says, well, you're royalty, too, Dr. Graham. I said, you're not going to talk about those stories about me being a queen, are you? <laughs> That's not royalty. <laughs> I, I have to ask, could you say in one sentence, what is the Cauliflower Oh, that's a reunion of old-time wrestlers. It used to be boxers, but the boxers have seemed to have dropped out. 
once a year we go to Las Vegas and uh, get together and wow. and bore each other with speeches and then uh, play, go to shows. And it's uh, it's uh, the last time I went was the 50th anniversary of the Cauliflower Alley. I missed two, I think, since then. So it's been in existence 52 years. Before we stop, each Dan, Ray, and I are going to ask you one more question. Okay. And I'll go first. Is there, of all the names and circumstances and things that you, we've been talking about, is there a wrestler, maybe from the past even, that you don't think gets the attention they deserve? Maybe an old-timer who's been forgotten or an undiscovered gem or just somebody that you really liked but you don't think gets well, talked about enough? I, 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 there's a lot of guys like that. Uh, see, even the big names from yesteryear are becoming a vague memory. Like sure. ra radio days with Woody Allen, each year they're getting a little, the memories <laughs> are getting a little dimmer. Yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, well, who was your hero as a kid in the wrestling ring? Buddy Rogers, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. Mm -hmm. nice. They still talk about him somewhat, but sure. uh, a lot of people are surprised that Ric Flair was a ripoff gimmick. We got Ric Flair, Nature Boy Ric Flair. Right. It was, a, but it seemed to work for Ric Flair. I really can't think of anybody just like that. Sure. I, Dan, one more question. Favorite type of gimmick match? Well, I'd say probably uh, the barbed wire match. That mm -hmm. really told the story. I mean, you got, when there's barbed wire and you're running into it. <laughs> one guy came up there setting the barbed wire up and he says to me, is that, that's, that's, that's really rubber barbed wire? Yeah, it's just rubber. So he put his hand, cut his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't really bounce off barbed wires the same way you do the ropes. Yeah. Oh, no. But we did. We did. <laughs> My last question is that you knew Ed Farhat. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have any interaction with his nephew, Sabu? Yeah. And what do you think about um, Sabu himself? Sabu was an excellent, excellent wrestler. He could do these real fantastic, uh, risky moves. He would fly all over the ring. He was terrific. He worked for me on one show. And I was very satisfied with him, and I, we never became great friends or anything, but once again, no problems. Mm. He, I, I, I think that he... There's, that might come back to your last question. Right. I think he's one guy that should have maybe gotten a break that didn't. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. But the, the politics is so much of wrestling. Yeah, I would say Sabu was a guy that should have gotten a break because he was really, cool. really one terrific wrestler. I got to manage him one night against Terry Funk. It was, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's take this opportunity to thank Dr. Graham for sitting thank down you. for our interview. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very sir. much. This thank, is great. Thank you, Ray, for sitting in and helping Absolutely. us with your wrestling knowledge. And uh, this is me and my co-host, Dan Brown. Dangerous Dan Brown. Dangerous Dan Brown. <laughs> I'm forgetful Jerry Joffe. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>
part of that interview stands out the most to you? Um, you know what? What the, a revelation or fact or story? You know what? The, 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 the thing that really stood out to me um, was right at the end there. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I always like knowing what like goes to wrestlers' minds mm-hmm. compared to what goes through the fans' minds. When mm-hmm. we ask them about certain things, like the Hulk Hogan's, yes. you know, like certain events in history, and get their take on what happened or what should have mm-hmm. happened or their feelings on somebody. So that part I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. mostly because I like hearing wrestlers talk smack about other wrestlers. Well, I was going to say, like, specifically, and I, as, as a wrestling fan, I've always been a fan of Scott Steiner, mm-hmm. and I knew him when he was Scott Rex Steiner in the old days wrestling with Dr. Graham. The big bad booty daddy, and all freaks and geeks. You know, uh, I did not know that Dr. Graham had such strong feelings yeah. associated with the name Scott Steiner. Yeah. I knew they weren't close, but I didn't know it was sort of that negative yeah you know it, and that that part was actually a little disappointing as a fan to hear the to hear mm-hmm. that they you know scotty steiner got his start with them mm-hmm. and the the see that they drifted away as far as they did you know for yes. the reasons they did it was actually it's quite sad right well i know dr graham uh, has trained a number of wrestlers perhaps scott steiner and steiner brothers are his two most famous yeah students disciples but yeah. there are other dr graham disciples throughout the wrestling world as well absolutely and also, you know, it was great having Ray with us and on the conversation. Well, Ray was okay. Well, he was okay. He was no dangerous Dan. No, he was just regular Ray Highclack. Yes, he he was uh, average Ray. He was average Ray. He was average Ray, but his eyes were as big as saucers. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was definitely very enthusiastic, and that's what we want to bring here to the Action Comedy mm-hmm. Nerd Show. We want people to be enthusiastic. We want people to be excited, except for a select number of you. Yes. A.K.A. the Republicans. And you know who you are. Yes. I did. Um, no reason to out yourself. <laughs> I did have to drive Ray to the interview, and I picked Ray up at his house. He was still asleep on the couch. Nothing about that surprises me. And when I knocked on the door, he woke up by, this is an exact quote. First, he yelped like, ah, <laughs> and then he said, what time is it? <laughs> So I like to think that's how Ray Highclack wakes up every morning. <laughs> it's just somebody knocks at his door. He goes, oh, what time man, is it? The milkman comes by. <laughs> Milk. Oh, what time is it? <laughs> um, all right. Well, I would just like to thank all of you for listening and thank Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. for being our guest and Ray Highclack for assisting us on in the interview. Yes, thank you guys. And thank you to Dangerous Dan Brown Dangerous for being my Dan partner Brown. in all of this. And we just want to thank Jeff Geddert for composing and producing our original theme music. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, that just leaves it for us to say uh, thank you for listening to another episode. Goodbye. (laughs) Worlds are colliding. The Big Bang. Reboot the universe. Come on. It's the Action Comedy Nerd Show. Comedy Nerd Show.